Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That is Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. I am your host, Sandra Flack. Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey. I'm grateful to be with you today. I again apologize for my voice. I'm still battling these allergies. It's getting just a tiny bit better each day, but at least I'm making progress. So I apologize for the you know, I told somebody the other day, I said, this is my Joyce Meyer voice, right? i am got that raspy, deeper voice, but we're going to make do with it. Hopefully it'll hold out through the whole episode again, um, but grateful to be with you today. We are uh, focusing on foster care throughout the month of May, uh, foster care uh, awareness month. And today we have a beauty from ashes story from a former foster youth. Uh, But before we get to our guest, please check out these announcements. Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast would like to invite you to join their Hope for the FASD Journey, a virtual support community for parents and caregivers raising individuals with an FASD diagnosed or not. This faith-based community includes an online bi-monthly support group, a monthly VIP conversation, and a private Facebook group which includes a video devotional from Natalie and Sandra every Saturday. To register, visit justicefororphansny.org forward slash training forward slash F-A-S-D. And... I've got some online workshops coming up. Um, So right around the corner within the next couple of days, Wednesday, May 24th at 7 p.m. Eastern, I'm leading an online three-hour deep dive into FASD using the FACETS Neurobehavioral Model. And beginning on Thursday, June 1st at 7 p.m. Eastern, I'm starting a six-week deep dive into FASD also using the FACETS model. It's 18 hours of content broken up over six three-hour sessions. Uh, If you are not quite ready for the deep dive, I always do the one-hour lunch and learn intro to FASD every month. Uh, There's one of those coming up on Wednesday, June 7th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Um, And I always recommend that lunch and learn. Great for... Um, grandparents of your kiddos, um, school teachers, bus drivers, babysitters, adult siblings, kind of you know the youth group leader, the Sunday school teacher, anybody in your child's life. Um, if your kiddo is was prenatally exposed, um, it's great for them to have a little bit of an understanding um, so that they can better interact with your child. Um, or if you're listening to this and you're like, wait, I don't, you know, don't know a whole lot about this FASD, 
fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Um, my kid may or may not have been diagnosed. This free one hour online lunch and learn is perfect for you to learn about FASD um, and uh, better be, be better equipped to parent and care for kiddos who are prenatally exposed. We do offer certificates of completion to everyone who participates in our workshops. And if you are a social worker licensed in New York State, we also offer CEUs as well. So to register for any of these online workshops, to check out um, all of our available trainings, visit our website, justicefororphansny.org. Just click on the training tab at the top of the page. You'll see the FASD selection, choose that. And then you can see everything that's available there. We've got lots of resources and things. You can scroll down to registration to register for any of the upcoming trainings that are on the calendar. Um, and there's a link to the website in the show notes for this podcast so you can easily check it out. Also, if you have not already, please, please subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. And when you subscribe, it makes it easier for other adoptive and foster parents to find this podcast. Uh, and we want them to be able to be encouraged and equipped too. So it's like sharing the love, right? Uh, before we meet our next guest, I do want to inform you, this is a hard story. If you have little ones around, you might want to wait and listen later on when they're not around, when they're in bed or when you're in the car by yourself or whatever. Um, our guest has experienced significant adversity and trauma all throughout her childhood. She was a victim of a failed system, but is now a survivor using her story for good. So please welcome Kalila Riga. Hi, Kalila. Hi. How are you? I am great. Trying to trying to get this voice to hold out for our conversation. I'm just so excited to have you on today. I had the pleasure of chatting with you, hearing your incredible uh, beauty from ashes story, and you just bravely and transparently shared your experiences. And I would love for my listeners, our listeners, to hear your story um, and just kind of begin to un unfold all that God has done in your life. So, so yeah. would, would you start with what you can remember and share um, about your childhood? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, when it comes to my story, um, you know, most most children, uh, most adults, uh, they recall their stories uh, with, you know, some fondness about their childhood and some, um, you know, recollection of fond memories of doing fun things with their parents or with other family members. And for me, um, you know, my history um, did not start that way. Um, at least not in my recollection. And so, um, you know, my history um, is rooted in trafficking. And um, so while my history may not have begun with trafficking, um, it was certainly interrupted by it. Um, and so when I was three years old, um, my I was sold um, through a gray market adoption um, at the age of three. Um, I was placed in a home um, with individuals who didn't speak any English. Um, I didn't speak any Spanish um, and I I was used for for their purposes of sexual deviances and um, and used to to 
be passed around to whomever they saw fit to bring in. Um, and so those are, you know, I don't have hard recollections of that as being very young. Um, but as I grew older, those memories started to to become concrete in those um to me, they were friends or or family members. Um, and so at the age of 11 is when, um, and even right before that, I think is when it became clear that something was wrong and something was not okay. And I needed to say something to somebody. So, yeah. so you were 11 when you actually told somebody at school what was going on mm -hmm. at home? Yeah. Um, so the day after I turned 11, I went into my school counselor and I, and I'm not sure that I really knew how to articulate, um, what was going on. And I wasn't really sure what was going to come of that conversation. I think in my mind at that age, it was more of, I just wanted things to be normal. And I didn't really have a sense of what normal was. I just didn't think that what was happening was normal. And so um, I just wanted it to stop. But I didn't understand that in me telling what was happening, that that was going to translate to me having to retell my story to a multitude of different people that would be in and out of the school all day. And that would mean that I was going to be removed from the home. So for me, that felt more like a punishment as opposed to this is for your good. Um, and within two weeks of that, I was placed right back into the same home. Um, and the state uh, granted visitations uh, to uh, the the man that I thought was my dad. Um, and initially they were court supervised, um, but then that uh, supervision was transferred to the woman that I thought was my mother, which, you know, essentially led to no one was really watching. And so um, the cycles of abuse and of um, sexual molestation and of rape and of, um, you know, the, the trafficking again, just started over and escalated. Um, and so I think within a year of that, um, instead of me being the one to tell, um, I told a friend at summer camp because I knew that her dad was a cop and I knew that they would do something because when I had reported myself the year before, uh, when I had gone to my school counselor, um, they had shown up and by they, I mean, my, my, my buyers, the people that I thought were my parents, um, they had shown up at the school to pick me up. And so in front of the entire school, uh, in front of CPS, uh, Child Protective Services, in front of everybody, this whole thing is, is unfolding and everybody is watching what's happening. And I have these people that I think are my parents screaming and yelling at me, telling me that I'm a liar and a disgrace to the family and how dare I say anything. Um, and so that stuck with me that somehow I was at fault and somehow this was not okay. So my thought process was, well, if I tell a friend and it's them saying something, then I can't be put at blame for this. Um, and unfortunately, the same scenario played out again, where it was um, this time I was pulled out and I was questioned. 
But again, there was no privacy. There was no, um, there was no care for how it would affect me or how it would affect anybody else that was watching what was happening. And you have young children watching this who've never probably witnessed anything like that. Um, and, and again, the same scenario played out where they've come to pick me up. It's in front of everybody at summer camp and the whole thing plays out again. And I'm being screamed at and yelled at again. So it just replayed for round two. Um, and so at that point, I entered the system again, um, but this time it was a permanent entry, which I didn't really understand what that meant when I initially went in. Um, but it basically you're talking meant that I- foster care, right? You entered the yes, foster care yes, system? The state, yes, this is the foster care system. Um, and so, but what was wild about it is that um, while I wasn't going back uh, home, which I was okay with because that wasn't where I wanted to be. I wasn't allowed to be adopted out, which is what I ultimately wanted because I didn't want to be part of this family, but that wasn't allowed. And I was forced to have visitations with this, this woman and these people that I didn't necessarily want to have either because I didn't understand why it was why it was being required. Um, and now being an adult and understanding now being an adult and understanding that reunification is the goal, right? In foster care, um, it kind of makes sense, but not really, because learning now that there was never an intent to put me back in the home, it begs the question, why the forced visitation when I didn't want to see them? And she was part of the problem of being part of the perpetrator. Right. right? But no, but nobody at that point knew that they weren't actually your parents, right? No. And the reason being is because, so I think most people, um, I I would venture to say, are familiar with black market and they're familiar with white market, right? And obviously um, the terms kind of explain themselves, right? Black market, we understand that that's underground. We understand that it's illegal um, in in that it's it carries a connotation of trafficking to a point, right? Because you're trafficking goods or you're selling goods that are illegally acquired, right? Um, or stolen, if you will. In a white market, Right. We have legal trade, bartering systems, those things, right? You go to the grocery store, right? The the typical trades. But then there's this middle area um, that people are not horribly familiar with, right? Myself included. I wasn't super familiar with it either. Um, I didn't really know anything about it until recent years. Um, and so for my situation, it's what you call a gray market adoption. So my mother left um, my dad uh, without his knowledge. So he was already gone from the house for the day. She packed me up, left, didn't say anything to anybody, left state lines, which that's not uncommon. I think a lot of women do that if they feel like there's a need to do that, right? Um, but in her case, I there wasn't any any reason that we've been able to uncover for why she did that. Um, but she transported me down to Nevada, to Las Vegas. And between her and her father, they somehow found this couple who were not U.S. citizens. 
Um, they didn't speak any English. I'm not sure how the relationship came to be. Um, but my mother, from what I've, uh, what I've come to learn is that I was abandoned at an emergency shelter. Um, so that placed me into state's care. But there was an attorney that was acquired by my mother and her dad who facilitated this adoption. And so what's interesting about that, and this gentleman is is now deceased, I believe he passed away back in 2000, I don't know, 2003, 2004, maybe I could be wrong on the dates. Uh, but what's interesting about him is that not only did he facilitate the adoption, but 10 years later, he becomes a judge in Las Vegas. Uh, but his practices and all of his adoptions are investigated and come into question because so many adoptees come forward in that it was done in a legal slash illegal fashion, right? Legal enough to pass, but not but very shady. So I, it's it's this gray area where they make it look legal for all intents and purposes. The paperwork is there. It's gone through the court system. So it's legal, but it's not. It's not right. <laughs> um, because, you know, our government um, is not really keen on placing uh, you know, when we look at adoption, right, because my husband and I have gone through the adoption foster to adopt classes and we've done all those things um, because at one point we had planned on on doing that um, because we'd participated in kinship care and and been respite care for other families and um, not like through the actual judicial system, but just because of the nature of what we do ministry wise. Um, but so, uh, you know, we've learned that the United States isn't real keen on placing a child who speaks only English into a home where nobody speaks the same language as they do. That wouldn't make a lot of sense to take a child who doesn't speak the same language and place them somewhere where nobody can communicate with them, right? Um, and so when we look at that, how is it possible then that this somehow flew under the radar and was permissible, right? And mm -hmm. so enters in the gray market um, area um, as far as how they acquired me, right? Wow. Um, yeah. So, so it was your it was your birth mom who actually crossed state lines and basically sold you. Right. And the couple that that quote unquote adopted you, right? Right. Um, they were the ones who were abusing you and trafficking you. Correct. You finally get removed from there after telling the second time you're placed in foster care. Right. What, um, how long were you in foster care at that point? Until I aged out. I mean, I ran away quite a bit, but I was there until I aged out. Um, I turned 18 before graduating high school. Um, so I turned 18 in December and I graduated in June. Um, and I don't actually, I didn't even stay in there until my graduation. The day that school let out, I had a moving truck there. <laughs> wow. I was ready. I was ready to be done. I was ready to go. But I also in part did that because I understood that once I graduated high school, I only had a couple weeks window to stay there because there's no supports in place for youth coming out of foster care. It's well, you're 18, you've graduated. See you. Bye. 
You can't be here anymore because the state's no longer going to pay for you, right? And we don't have any other resources for you, so you have to go figure it out. The travesty in that is that's how girls like me, young boys, right, just youth in general, this is how we end up in situations where we end up exploited, we end up trafficked, right? We end up in gangs, we end up in these communities where we find a safe haven, right? Because that's what we need. We need a support. So we go where we can find it because oftentimes we can't go back where we came from because that's just plain toxic, right? Mm -hmm. And it's why we came out of the, came out of those environments to begin with. So where do we go? Um, You know, and that's, it's a travesty and we still have that going on today. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is a travesty. So Kalila, t- unpack what happened when you you moved out, you got the moving truck, you moved out. So tell us about those early years after aging out of foster yeah. care without support. Yeah, so I I had, um, so my last placement was in Boys Town. Uh, we had a satellite campus in Las Vegas. Um, and I will tell you, I hated it while I was there but that was probably the best place I could have gone. Um, you know, <laughs> if if my foster parents from then, my house parents, if they ever came across this podcast, uh, Pookie and Jeff Hopgood, the best house parents that could have ever existed, right? I couldn't stand being there. <laughs> they were hard on me, or at least I thought they were, but I was so angry, right? That it just... It didn't matter what they did because I was just angry and, you know, had a lot going on. Um, But a lot of the life lessons they tried to teach me, they did stick. I just, they didn't kick in until late (laughs) thirties. But yeah, so I moved out. I had, I I worked while I was in high school um, while I did other things. And uh, so I saved up my money and I moved into an apartment and uh and i was there for a little bit um and i entertained a lot of different guests and people and you know whoever wanted to stay and i made friends with anybody that would be friendly um and i then ended up with a traveling sales crew um which you know was a lot of fun but there was a lot of toxicity um you know, and there's with the traveling sales crews, um, you know, when we talk about labor trafficking, there's a lot of great sales crews where you don't have that going on. And then there's sales crews where you do have that going on. And then there's sales crews where they might be a good sales crew, but they don't know that there's other stuff going on underneath the surface because nobody talks about it and nobody says anything, right? And so for me, that was my experience. I can't speak for anybody else that I worked with um, as far as, you know, uh, for the other girls or for the guys for that matter. Um, But for my experience, there were um, several gentlemen on that sales crew that were very exploitive and um the messaging for me was you need to do whatever it takes to make whatever sales are needed we're only giving you this amount of money right and you don't actually like they show you on a computer screen well this is what you've earned 
right? But there's no, like, I don't think I saw a 1099 or anything the entire time that I worked for them until 2004 was the first time that I saw a 1099, um, you know, and that was after being with them on and off since 98. Um, but so in that period, I was on and off with them because I would, I would find myself in situations of exploitation and of being recruited uh, in, in trafficking scenarios um, where I would end up off the road and um, in just in really dark situations. Um, and I would stay in those places until um, I would find a way to make a phone call and say, I need a bus ticket. Come get me out of here. Right. I'm ready to I'm ready to come back. Um, and so I kind of went through these cycles for for a while. And there was about a two, three year period that I went back to Las Vegas and I made some friends um, or at least I thought they were friends. And um, one was a neighbor. One was a girl that I met at the tattoo shop and I was dating a tattoo artist at the time who worked at that same tattoo shop and his boss was a very um, charismatic um, and I don't think he would ever identify himself as, as being uh, predatory, but I can remember being there and watching him literally um, hit on young girls. And, you know, and I can remember being hit on when I was 13 by him and, you know, and the comments would be, Oh, you just wait until you're old enough. Or if your mom's cool with it, you two can both come over. And he would target moms and daughters and try to get them back to his place and drink with them. And you know what I mean? And, you know, and that was that was deemed normal, you know. Um, and so but these girls, I went and did everything with them, you know, um, but it was it was a process of grooming to break down the barriers of what I was comfortable doing or not comfortable doing. So it was, oh, we're going to go do some pictures. We're just going to go dance and you don't have to take your clothes off. You're it's it's like being in your swimsuit. It's just like being in your underwear. They're just going to throw money at you. You don't have to let them touch you. There's bouncers. There's this. There's all of these measures in place. But bit by bit. They break down the barriers of what you're comfortable in doing, right? And so that kept going. And then it was, well, you're just going to do some pictures. We're going to pay you $200 an hour to take pictures of you in heels. No one's going to photograph your face and you're just going to walk all over somebody. And we're going to sell it in a film. Well, when you're 19, 20 years old, $200 an hour even by today's standards, to a 19, 20-year-old, that's a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Especially when you've got bills to pay, or even if you don't have a lot of bills to pay, it's still $200 an hour, right? Um, so, and when someone tells you no one's going to see your face, that's a real easy barrier to break, right? Because you think, well, there's no identifying anything, right? Because nobody identifies you by your feet. Right. <laughs> right. So... It seems very simple, but bit by bit, it was, well, you're not actually doing anything. We're just going to make it look like you are. 
right? Or it's, well, let's just kiss and do it for shock value just to get a rise out of people. You don't actually like girls. We're just, we're just doing it for, for, for shock. But these barriers keep getting broken. And by the time I knew it, right, I was dancing in clubs. I was working at an escort agency with the understanding of here's a pager. You have to answer these calls when they say to answer. You have to show up at that location. You have to stand in a lineup. You have to meet this quota. This is how much you have to make every night. And those were the expectations, um, you know, and then it developed further than it was. Here's a voyeur house. You get to live there. You don't have to pay. You don't have to do any of this, but you are going to be filmed the whole time. And if somebody jumps on and says, hey, I want to private chat with so-and-so, you have to be available immediately. Even if you're sleeping, get up because you're answering that that message, right? And so you're expected to work around the clock like that. So, yeah. And that was my, that was my life, um, you know, for a really long time. So, you know, um, I, when you, when you encountered me in, in day-to-day life, I didn't fit the narrative of what a trafficked person looks like, right? We hear trafficking and we think, oh, they're going to have bruises or they're going to have, you know, certain identifying things, or they're going to be strung out on drugs, or they're going to be this. Not every single person that is a trafficked person looks that way, Mm, right? They just don't, you know, so. So you had mentioned, Khalila, that along the way, you had a daughter. Tell us, tell us about that, what happened there. Yeah. So that was through a gentleman that I met while with the sales crew. And um, (laughs) I had been told because of all of the trauma experienced as a child, all the sexual trauma, um, multiple doctors had told me, you're not having any kids. It's not happening. So don't, you don't have anything to worry about. So um, I didn't. Uh, And so I, that was, you know, free reign um, to just be as promiscuous as possible. Right. Um, And so I never had any fears of getting pregnant because as far as I knew, you know, it wasn't happening. And here I was 22 years old and uh, nothing, you know, and, and by that point, I should have multiple kids by that point, because in all of my experiences, protection was never used by anybody, not one person. So I should have had something, but God, (laughs) God kept me from all of the STDs, all of the things that I should have contracted that you know what I mean? That that should have been a part of the story have not been, right? Um, but it was him who one day said to me, he said, you're pregnant. And I said, well, you're a liar. So, and I argued with him. Uh, and so to shut him up, I said, fine, I'll go to the ER and I'll get, you know, because we I didn't have any money at the time. And, uh, and I said, well, I'll just go there. Cause you know, I know they'll do a test for free. And, uh, so I went, I fell asleep 
because it was taking so long. And, uh, and I woke up to them. uh, And of course, at this time, I didn't know that my name was Kalila. So uh, I had a different name then. Um, And so they woke me up and they said, uh, well, you know, you're, you're definitely pregnant. And I said, well, you have the wrong test. So I need you to go find the right one. (laughs) And they just looked at me like I'd lost my mind. And they were like, no, you're, and I said, I don't care what you say. I'm telling you, you have the wrong test. I said, I can't have kids. So, you know, uh, and so finally they did an ultrasound, uh, on me to prove to me that I was in fact pregnant. And that broke the dam of tears uh, because I didn't know what I was going to do. I was terrified of what his response was going to be um, because he already had a son and he wasn't exactly uh, a kind individual. Um, And so I really didn't know what to expect. And so the doctor walks in and he says, well, He says, I don't know what you're crying about. He said, it's not that big of a deal. He said, you're going to miscarry in a few days anyway. So at that point, I got angry and I said, let me get this straight. I said, so you're telling me that I can have kids and in fact, I'm pregnant. And now in the same breath, you're telling me that I'm going to miscarry in a few days. And this was all the day before Thanksgiving. And That's the first time I remember praying to God and actually meaning it and having the thought of like, okay, if you exist, right. And if you're real, I'm going to need you to do something here. Right. So like, and I, and I did the bargaining thing. I said, okay, I, if you let me keep this baby, I will stop stealing (laughs) because I had a horrible stealing problem. And that was my bargaining with him, right? And you would think that that would have been the turnaround for me. And it wasn't. Uh, I, I I did stop stealing, but I still kept on with everything else. Uh, but I did hold that end at least once I had her. The last thing I stole was a nursing bra because I didn't have money to buy one. And that was the very last thing that I stole. Uh, but I kept... I kept my word and I said, you let me keep this baby and I'm going to quit stealing. Uh, But yeah, so I had her and uh, at at the ripe age of 23. But in the interim, I ended up in jail and, you know, (laughs) uh, ended up arrested in Vegas. And, you know, because I was still doing me and trying to find a way to survive. And um, so, yeah. Yeah. So did she go into foster care? Miraculously, she did not. She did not. Um, so because I was still pregnant with her when I when I went to jail. Okay. Um, yeah. And then um, and then I uh I think I skipped out. I think they let me out on my OR, uh, which is on recognizance, and I I don't remember if anything was paid or not. I think I think the people I thought were my parents, I think they paid something. But I remember the girls in the jail, they were like, oh, don't worry, you'll be back. And I was like, oh, no, you'll be back. I'm not. (laughs) I was like, I will skip state and skip the country before I come back in here. Y'all can take me out like Bonnie and Clyde before I ever walk back in this place. I'm not coming back. And I skipped out and I I left very shortly after and, uh, and left for Florida. So I started my 
my being transient again and finding ways to make money. And, um, and so that, that, you know, re-entered the, the life of, of just crazy exploitations and trafficking and yeah. So did, did you, a couple things, did you, did you still have your daughter through that time? You still had her? Yeah. So I had her, um, at 23 is when I finally gave birth to her in the summer. Um, and so I tried to make it work with her, with her dad, but he was in and out and he was a heroin addict, um, which I learned that I was probably about eight months along when I learned that, um, you know, and, um, cause he showed up at the house and he was dope sick and I didn't know what that was. Um, I thought he had the flu. So, um, cause I hadn't, like I was familiar with other drugs. I wasn't familiar with heroin, um, which I'd been around it before, but I hadn't seen anybody sick off of it. Um, so I wasn't familiar with that one. I was familiar with the others. Um, but yeah, I had her and, um, and I was back and forth across the country trying to make things work with him. And at one point, um, when she was about three months old, we were in New Jersey, uh, and he had me staying in initially in a motel and then, uh, and then I was finally allowed to stay at his mother's for a while, but he wasn't staying there with me. Um, and then he showed up one day and said, here's $250. You can get out and you can go figure out your life on your own with her. And so uh, they dropped me off at the train station and uh, with $250 in hand, I took a train to Colorado because I really didn't know where else to go. Um, I had some friends in Colorado, nobody that I could actually stay with, but I was like, well, at least I know people there because I wasn't going to go back to Vegas because I knew I had warrants and problems there. And uh, and I didn't want to go back to home because I didn't trust them around her because uh, I it was enough for me. I wasn't subjecting her to that. Um, so that just led to more chaotic um, situations and and back into back into the back into the life I went. Um, so she was she was with me for for all of that. Um, unfortunately, yeah. Wow, wow. So I know when we had talked previously, you mentioned that the life you lived was normal to you like it seemed mm -hmm. normal um can you explain that yeah so you know when you're in that lifestyle you know whether it's a lifestyle of being in a home with poverty or being in a home with alcoholic parents or a home where abuse is happening right um whatever that looks like it seems normal to you because it's just your life, right? Um, you know, there's, um, when you get to a space of reporting things so many times and things just get dismissed, you just begin to have the thought process of, oh, well, maybe it's just me, right? So this must be 
normal and I'm just the only one who has a problem with it. So you just carry on. And then couple that with growing up in Vegas where sex is very much a part of the culture there, right? Um, again, it's it just seems normal because you walk down the strip, like you can walk down the strip today and it's far worse today than it was then. You know, for clothing, the girls are wearing paint. So there's no reason why in your mind you don't think that anything is abnormal, right? Whereas if you grow up in rural Ohio, <laughs> you go there and you're like, what in the world are they doing, right? Because that's not normal to you. Right. But so for me, a lot of that was just, well, this is just my life. So nothing seemed terribly out of place. Um it, it was just how life was, um, you know. Yeah. How did you, when and how did you break away from that life? You know, honestly, God has everything to do with that. Um, I I would love to pretend that there was like this, this epiphany moment of, um, you know, oh my gosh, I'm being trafficked or, oh my gosh, I'm being exploited and my daughter's at risk and I have to get away from this. But there wasn't, um, you know, I, I gave my life to the Lord in 2012. And I think like with all people deep within us, we all have this, this yearning for, um, for having someone to lean on, right. For wanting to um, to just have somebody to do life with, right? Nobody really wants to be alone. I don't care who they are. Nobody says, oh, I just want to be by myself. No, you don't. <laughs> you might for a little bit, but not like fully alone as a recluse, right? Um, that's not natural. And so, you know, just like anybody else, and especially having been a single mom at that point for such a long time, right? Um, you know, and it's a God-given desire that we have that we want to have a partner, right? Uh, and so I still wanted that. And I I met a gentleman and um, and I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. And, you know, um, and he came to visit for a weekend and I invited him to church with me and everything. And, um, and he just never left. Um, and he just refused to leave. Um, like I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't get him to leave, even if it didn't matter how I wanted him to leave. It didn't make a difference. And to save face, right? Because you wouldn't dare uh, show that to the people in the church that uh, something might be going on because you know, you're already feeling ashamed because somewhere within you, you know, you're not supposed to have somebody in your house if you're not married to them that way. Right. But as a baby Christian, you know, you're just, you're still figuring it out. Right. And you haven't learned all the things yet. Um, and so, um, you know, he, he just stayed and people liked him, you know, and, um, and I saved face and pretended like everything was okay, but, you know, at home, uh, you know, I was being raped. I was being, you know, abused, um, you know, mentally and emotionally and verbally. Um, and 
all the while while my daughter's downstairs in her room and um and I'm sure that she was subjected to to some level of not physical or sexual abuse, but certainly some level of of you know mental or or verbal or emotional um for the few times that I couldn't be around because I still had to work and I didn't have much of a choice in that. So I had to leave. Right. And so if she came home from school and he was there, there wasn't anything I could do about that. Um, and I, for as, um, for as strong willed and as mouthy as I can be, <laughs> um, it's a different ball game when you understand that you're trying to protect yourself and your kid to whatever degree you can without rocking the boat. And with, you know, people always say, well, I would do this in this situation. You don't know what you're going to do until you're in it. You really don't. Um, And what you think you're going to do, oftentimes you might, you do the polar opposite of that, right? Um, In the name of self-preservation or just that, you know, uh, whatever your body's response to trauma is. Um, And so, there was a a point that we reached where he needed to go um, up back up North where he was from for something. And so uh, we all got in the car. I'm not sure if my daughter was with us or not, because I, I, a lot of that memory is just kind of shut out a bit. Um, But somebody else was with us that was um, that was driving and, you know, the direction had been to stay in the car And as soon as he hit that door and went inside, the person that was driving, I said, we need to go. And I got a little bit of a, well, but, and I said, no, 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 no. So we need to go and we need to go now. I said, I don't care. Leave him here. We have to leave because if we don't leave, I'm never getting him out of my house. And, uh, you know, so we, we, we drove off. I shut my phone off. So that way it wouldn't ring until I could get my number changed. Um, I got back home. I called my landlord, um, who was definitely God sent because he allowed me to break my lease without any penalty, didn't put it on my credit. I explained the situation to him. Um, and I actually had planned on leaving the state because that's my MO when, when I'm trying to get away, I, I leave the state. Um, and that had been my plan. And so um, I got rid of everything. I left everything behind and was ready to leave. And um, but God had somebody in the way to say, no, you're not leaving the state. You know, you can come here. And it wasn't a great situation where I was headed to. But had I not stayed, I wouldn't have met my husband. Had I not stayed, um, I wouldn't have um, gotten planted the way that I've that I've gotten planted and, and, uh, in ministry and, uh, and with the church that I'm in and, um, and just really gotten plugged into those, to those support systems and those resources that have been, um, just instrumental in my, in my healing journey, um, and in my ability to be a part of somebody else's healing journey. That's just incredible. I do want to back up a little bit because you mentioned in 2012, you got saved. How did that come about? How'd you get in church? (laughs) So now I was raised in church, right? By the same people who were my buyers. So I really wanted nothing to do with church. So I, and I'd been to church 20 million times in between, you know, the age of 12 and, and 
I don't know, how old was I in 2012? I don't know, 32-ish, maybe. Um, so, you know, over the co- course of 20 years, I'd been in and out, but my primary practice was witchcraft because in my mind, uh, witchcraft was a, a peasant uh, religion and it was about the earth and taking care of it and taking care of each other. And that spoke to me, um, you know, because that I valued that I valued let's care for one another. I valued the, the sense of community that I had from that. And even in my pregnancy, um, when I spent a good portion of my time homeless in Colorado, the first people, the only people to help and to take me in were people that were practicing witchcraft. It wasn't the church, even though I reached out to churches. It wasn't wasn't anybody in the faith community. It was the people who were actively practicing witchcraft and were witches and part of a coven and the whole night. They made sure that I had an apartment. They provided everything I needed for preparation for pregnancy, baby clothes, a cradle, everything that I needed. They made sure I had somewhere to shower. They made sure that I ate every day, you know? So for me, that really sealed me into this is my community, you know? Um, Now that didn't mean that I wouldn't go to a church because I also understood that church people, if they invite you and if you go, church people like to eat. And so if you go and you're their guest, they're likely to feed you afterwards and Mm -hmm. you don't have to pay. And I will never turn down a free meal. So (laughs) that said... That, that was, um, that was my angle. And so, um, you know, my daughter, I'd been sending her to church with this, um, with this couple, um, mainly so that I could sleep in the next day, uh, because I was out at the bars and doing whatever I was doing on, on Fridays and Saturday nights. And so it was a welcome relief for me, but she would come home and I would try to undo everything that she had learned about God. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm paying for that now, but God is no respecter of persons. And if he restored me, he'll restore her. And I'm just going to stand on that. Um, But that said, uh, so I (laughs) had uh, this gentleman that I worked with uh, had helped me with my taxes. And, um, and so as a means of repayment, I invited him and his wife over um, to dinner and I, offered to cook for them and and whatnot, because I love to cook. And so they came over and I I didn't know that he was, you know, religious or whatever. And uh, so I invited them over and I've got wine out and all the things and like beer and just whatever out, you know, and, and I'm cooking away and, um, and the wife invited me to church. And I was like, oh, not this again. And I was like, all right, fine. <laughs> I said, all right, fine. I, I'll go, you know. Um, and so what's amusing is, so I agreed to go and I stay at their house and we're driving to go to this church. And as we get to the church, it's the one church in Ohio that I made the most fun of and that I hated the most in the entire state hated this church of all the churches I could have gone to. It had to be this one. And I was like, Oh no, not this place. (laughs) I'm like, y'all could have gone anywhere. Why did it have to be here? Uh, And so 
we went in and I have to tell you, I don't remember anything about the service, nothing. I couldn't tell you if it was Pastor Darlene Bishop who preached. It could have been Lawrence Bishop Jr. who preached. It could have been a guest preacher. I have no idea, no clue. Um, But what I do remember is that I wasn't ready to go home and I wanted to come back for the second service. And I remember asking them if I could come to church with them for every service thereafter. So I didn't have this, you know, uh, what I see happen for a large number of people of, you know, they, they raise their hands because they want to give their life to the Lord. They come down to the front for the altar call. They go through the sinner's prayer. They have this, you know, moment of weeping and, you know, uh, this beautiful experience. I don't, I don't recall having any of that. I just knew that something was different and something there was something that I wanted different, right. And, and that something needed to change. Um, and so, and, and so I just continued to stay and, and to kind of continuously walk that out, you know, and I, and I had my moments of, of backsliding and doing things all wrong and not understanding a lot, um, you know, but, but God is so, so patient and so, so graceful with us that, you know, um, that he gives us that space like he did with the righteous struggler. We might fall down seven times, but it's the getting back up and it's the turning towards him. And it's the, the, the pushing forward and of, okay, Lord, I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep coming towards you. Right. Um, And I'm going to keep walking away from the line of the world. Right. And that's, that's what he's looking for. He's looking for us to, to turn towards him and to keep going towards him, to turn from the world, to change our minds, to change our hearts, um, and really to let him work in us. And that's, that's, you know, the largest part of the journey. And in doing that, um, you know, I think that's what prepared me was him preparing me to, for him to be able to say, okay, now you can know your story. Now you can know that you were missing. Now I can restore you here. Because had any of this come to pass in as far as knowledge wise about any of my story prior to this, I would have gone off the rails. Um, you know, I had so much anger still, even though I'd forgiven my my buyers, my adoptive parents. Um, I don't think that I would have handled it well. Um, you know, I just know me and I know me without Jesus. She's not pretty, you know, she means well, but she's, she's got a nasty little streak in her and, uh, you know, I would have gone off the rails and, um, and I'd probably be sitting in a prison cell, you know, or dead, um, you know, and so God knows what he's doing. And, um, and I'm grateful that, you know, that he's allowed me to come this far. And even when, when all of this started to unfold and I started to learn this, I, I remember praying and telling the Lord that this is all great that you've restored me and that you're bringing these things to pass. I said, but if you don't get glory out of this, then this is for nothing. It's great to have this and to know where I 
have come from and to see a face that looks like mine and to know that I have siblings, right? Um, Because it's beautiful. It's fantastic. But if they don't come to know you, if my life does not reflect you, and if you don't get glory from this, then it's purposeless. It, it serves an earthly purpose, but it doesn't serve um, a, a kingdom purpose, which is eternal. And that is far more important. So how old were you when you found out, because we'll fill in the blanks here. How yeah. old were you when you found out that really it was your birth mom who did that illegal adoption, sold you, and the adoptive family were really buyers. How old were you when you finally had all those pieces together and understood that? Yeah, so um, 2020 is when I found out that my name wasn't my name, that I had been missing for 37 years from my family, that they had all been looking for me. Everybody knew about me but me. Uh, <laughs> and so that's when I learned that. And um, and it wasn't until after my mother um, chose to stop speaking to me um, four months later uh, on my birthday weekend of 2020. Uh, it wasn't until that following spring in 21 uh, through a conversation with family members um, who I won't name because they've asked to remain anonymous. Um, but um, I learned through conversations with them that uh, when my dad went looking for me um, and when he went um, on this on this hunt to try to track down where she had gone, where I had disappeared to, um, is when he had received the information that she had transported me to Vegas and that I had been sold to a couple uh, that was uh, to some, the way that they put it was some Spanish people. So he didn't even know that it was a couple, just some Spanish people. Um, and so that was spring of 21 that I found that out. So, yeah. So a lot of this, so this is still fairly recent. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, my story continues to evolve and unpack and shift and go in, in different directions. And, you know, um, so yeah, it's, it's quite the journey. Yeah. And you, you ended up doing like the 23 and me and like finding I biological did. family. I, we did the 20, yeah, we did the 23 and me because uh, my husband's stepmother was like, oh, we should find out what heritage you are after uh, finding out that uh, who we thought was my dad had passed away. Uh, and so, you know, because I had told her that I had suspected about being adopted, but I thought it was going to be like within the family still, because I remember growing up with uh, a cousin who was overseas and he had really curly hair like I do. And we kind of looked alike. And I thought, oh, well, maybe it was like an interfamily thing. And like, you know, maybe he's my sibling and like, we just couldn't be kept together. And like, because that happens in families, right? That's not uncommon. Um, and so she was like, well, I'm going to buy the 23andMe thing and let's, let's see what it comes back as for your heritage, right? And so uh, I was working at Zales and I got the results back because they send them digitally. And so I get the results back and 
that (laughs) and I was a hot mess instantly because it came back and it said 0.0% Latin for every single country in the book. Wow. No Spanish. Astonishing (laughs) because I speak Spanish fluently. I read it. I write it. I cook it. I eat it. I dance it. I'm embedded in the, the community here in Cincinnati. Like, you know, it's, it's, uh, So, yeah, I wasn't expecting that. And so, you know, I'm a hot mess and I'm bawling and I made the um, it's funny now. It wasn't funny then uh, mistake (laughs) calling my husband for moral support. And um, so for any female listeners that are married, newlyweds going to be married anytime in the near future, do not call your husband first for moral support call your girlfriend uh, because my wonderful husband <laughs> who will probably listen to this. Uh, I called him up and I, and I'm bawling. And I said, it says I'm not Latin and I'm freaking out. And he says, okay, well, what does it say? And I said, it says I'm 70% Irish, which <laughs> listen, I'm really Brown. <laughs> With really black hair, I mean, it's dyed right now, but really jet black hair, dark brown eyes. There's nothing on me that looks Irish, right? And he's like, okay, and what else? (laughs) And I said, well, it's like 30% African-American. And he goes, well, that's good. I said, what do you mean that's good? Mm -hmm. Like I stopped crying long enough because at this point I'm just incredulous about how in the world can you say that this is good, that I'm not Latin and that I'm mixed, you know? And he says, well, the government owes us reparations. I said, you're an idiot. <laughs> I'm getting off the phone with you. I am done talking to you. I'm calling somebody else. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I can laugh about it now. My family and I get a good kick out of it these days. But then it was like, how in the world can you say such a thing at a time like this? Um, so... You know, so we, uh, so we're, I'm looking through like the matches and it matches me with nobody, nobody that was like close and family had ever taken it. So like no siblings, no aunts, nobody had taken it. So like the closest match was, uh, I think it might've been like a second or third cousin by marriage question mark. I could be wrong about that. I have to go back and look at the family tree. But at the time was this beautiful, translucent, 85-year-old woman named Betty Knievel. Yes, actual relationship to evil Knievel. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yes. Yep. So there's my claim to fame uh, by marriage, (laughs) not by blood. But but yeah. And so that was like the the closest match that I had was was that and I'm like well this is great and she knows nothing you know she says well you know me and my siblings were abandoned when I was 12. I was like great Mm -hmm. uh so my my husband's stepmother says well let's get ancestry just to be sure it's not wrong because I'm telling her the results and she's looking at me I'm like there's no way you're Irish (laughs) you know so we get the ancestry thing and nope, definitely, definitely Irish, definitely, you know, all of an African-American. And so I didn't know what to do with the results. And 
So we just kind of let him sit there for a while. And uh, so in 2020, um, you know, you know, if you buy something uh, and if you talk about it or if you buy it, your phone is listening. And so (laughs) if you have social media, you'll start getting all the ads and like the pages for them. And so I'm getting all of these, um, uh, whatchamacallit, these um, for faith, for ancestry, their, their page comes across my uh, Facebook feed. And so people are commenting left and right. And I never, I don't pay attention to them because what for, right? Um, Like I've already bought it. I don't care what it says, but this one day I see somebody post on there. They said, uh, Oh, I found a sibling. Da, 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 da. And I was like, oh, that's cute. And I was feeling really sarcastic and petty apparently that day because I decided to comment. And I said, that's great. I found a second cousin who's 85 and doesn't know anything. Maybe I'll get lucky one day. And somebody that's, you know, closer in, in you know, relationship will take this test and maybe I'll get some answers as to who I belong to. And so that started the flood of of responses by hundreds of people. Oh, you need to do this or you need to do that. You need to upload your results here. And I was like, I'm going on vacation. I'm not answering any of you. But there was one message, the girl uh, from Oregon, Randy Ann, and she says, I can totally help you if you want. And I was like, yep. Okay. And I didn't pay it any mind. I was like, oh, I'll circle back to that later. And uh, cause my husband and I were getting ready to go on our trip for our anniversary. And uh, so probably like six to eight hours later, I get a message in my inbox on messenger and it's Randy Ann from Oregon. And she says, Hey, I hope you don't think I'm super creepy. She's like, I promise I'm not a weirdo. She's like, I just haven't been able to get your comment out of my mind the entirety of the day. And like, it's eating at me. And I just really feel like I'm supposed to help you figure this out. And I said, okay. I said, well, I know what that is. I said, so here's my information. Do what you want with it. See what you can figure out. Now, at the time, all the information that she has is a wrong name, which we didn't know it was a wrong name at the time. And the information that she has from Ancestry and from 23andMe, right? So she's got my my wrong name, the correct date of birth, and the information on Ancestry and 23andMe. Within 30 days, she has everything figured out. Wow. Two weeks in, yeah. Two weeks in, roughly, she calls me flipping out. She says, oh my gosh, I found you. And I said, okay. (laughs) She said, your name isn't your name and you were illegally adopted. I was like, "Uh, I don't know how to process that. Okay, what's my name? (laughs) Let's start there. You know, and she says, your name is Kalila Marissa Bass. I was like, wow. And it felt like coming home. Because that's the first time that I felt like, oh, that it's kind of like when you try on a pair of jeans and they fit just right. And that's how that felt for me. Um, You know, I, I remember seeing the movie Harriet and when he asks her, 
is there a name that you want to have recorded as your new name, your name of, of freedom? And she says, yes, I want my husband's name and I want my mother's name. And she records her name as Harriet Tubman, even though she was born Araminta Ross, right? And so for me, that that scene resonates so much with me because it's like I've gotten my freedom back because I have my name, uh, you know, and so um, two weeks goes by and we're doing all of this digging to try to like map out, you know, exactly where I belong on the tree and we're narrowing down who might mom be, who might dad be and all of that. And um, she had sent me a message and I was in the middle of picking up my daughter from work Um and so I couldn't read the message and I pull into the parking lot of my daughter's work and I'm like, just getting ready, ready to read the message. And here she is calling. And I answered the phone. I said, Hey, and I'm in the middle of telling her like, Hey, I'm getting ready to read the message. And I was going to respond. And she interrupts. She goes, you have to get off the phone with me. And in my head, I'm like, you called me. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and she says, you have to call them. And I said, call who? She said, your family. I said, what are you talking about? She said, you have to call your family right now. She said, they have been looking for you for 37 years. You have been missing. And I was a puddle of tears. And I tried with everything I could to get it together to try to make this phone call, you know, um, and that, you know, so I made it a very quick phone call because I had to like drive home still. <laughs> and I didn't want it to be, I didn't want it to be a like a short phone call. And so I had to tell them like, I'm going to call you as soon as I get home, you know? Uh, and so that turned into a four hour long phone call with one of my aunts. And the next night was a four hour phone call with the next aunt. And a few days later, it was a four hour phone call with my brother and they're all sending me screenshots of these messages of, oh my gosh, I can't believe we found her. Oh my gosh, she's still here. You know, and everybody's just, you know, flipping out because I'm still here, you know? Um, and so I learned that both my dad and my grandmother up until the times of their death, that my picture never left their wall, um, you know, in hopes of, you know, me being restored back to, the family, my dad, the last time he spoke with one of my aunts, um, his last request that he had from her that he made her promise was that uh, that they would find me in 13 years to the date, to the exact date, 13 years, I was restored back. Wow, yeah. that is incredible. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I did want to ask you about Elevate Academy. Um mm -hmm largest online school for human trafficking survivors yeah. you attended. So share about that experience. Yeah. So Elevate Academy um, is uh, through Rebecca Bender Initiative. Um, Rebecca Bender is a, uh, a fellow survivor leader and advocate. Um, she and I actually have uh, a little bit of a uh, a tied history um, that uh, from from our past in Vegas, 
um, which I, <laughs> it's funny because I wasn't sure if she would remember me at all. And when I graduated from Elevate, um, she was, of course, you know, in our, in our graduation, which was via Zoom. And I had sent her a, a private message just to send her some encouragement and just to congratulate her on her, you know, on her accomplishments, because she's accomplished so much um, between, you know, training law enforcement and federal agents and, you know, having this amazing school for survivors um, to be able to have job readiness and kind of prepare them for um, for their next steps coming out of, you know, such a, a harsh life and, you know, missing some of those key things that they needed. Um, you know, so I, I just wanted to, to send her a quick message. And so I, I dropped in the, in the chat and I was like, you know, um, you may not remember me and that's okay if you don't, you know what I mean? Cause I, obviously we both look different, you know what I mean? Healthy, right. We don't look like we did then. Um, and so I, you know, and I said, I just wanted to encourage you and everything. And she, she typed back, she said, I thought you looked familiar. <laughs> and I was tickled pink. And I was like, Oh, you know, like, not that we want to remember each other from that kind of negative space. But I but I told her, I said, I'm so happy to see that the Lord brought us both out of that space, and that we're both on the other side, using our voices and using our stories to empower other survivors. Right. Um, so yeah, so Elevate Academy, um, I graduated just May 1st, actually. Um, wow. it took me three tries because I was having different surgeries and things that were um, preventing me from being able to use my hands and actually do the things that I needed to do for a class. Um, but yeah, uh, they, they provide um, different um, courses, um, on, you know, like doing public speaking or having a nonprofit, um, you know, budgeting, um, just professional development, um, understanding how to, what skills you actually have that you learned even while in the space of trafficking, right? Because, you know, like the word says, what the enemy meant for evil, God will use for good, right? Anything that God gave us that's a gift from him, the enemy chooses uses to distort it, right? So God may have given us the gift of being good at, you know, sales. Well, the enemy will twist that and distort it for us to use it for manipulating, um, you know, people for financial gain in a negative context, right? That doesn't mean that it was a negative skill. It just means that we need to relearn how it's used to do good with, right? And um, and what skill sets we still have. And so um, Elevate does an amazing job at equipping survivors with that. And once um, a survivor graduates from Elevate Academy, there is a multitude of resources um, and job opportunities, um, you know, in, in different things that come through Elevate that are offered that are for survivors. Um, you know, for survivor-led spaces, um, you know, survivors are taught about ethical storytelling and um, helping them understand that, um, you know, there there is value in their story. So, you know, just like 
just like if somebody were to be invited, um, you know, like on, I don't know, to be a keynote speaker, we'll say at a large event, right? They're being compensated for their time and for their travel and different things. Well, just because you're speaking about your own personal story doesn't, you know, I mean, mean that you don't get to have that same type of compensation. And even the federal government has, you know what I mean, outlined what that looks like for for people to have as as a negotiated, you know, um, fee for consulting for doing those things. And so um, Elevate does a great job at really empowering survivors to understand their space and, and what they can do with their stories um, and really helping them understand where they fit because not everybody that comes from a space of survivorhood um, really wants to tell their story. Maybe, maybe for them, it's having a bakery. Maybe it's they're they're good in finance. And so they want to pursue a career in that or in nursing. It doesn't always have to be centered around, you know what I mean? Their lived experience, but, um, but I, they do a great job at unpacking that. And once you've um, graduated, um, you always have access to any new courses and different things that they bring on. So for example, um, they're able to get certified in Slack, right? Um, which is um, a tool that is used a lot by different organizations and companies um, for communication um, kind of like Jabber or, you know, those different tools. And so that's usually something that most people pay $300 and upwards for, right? And so that's something that survivors are able to do and get that certification and Elevate provides that to them. Wow, that's incredible. I love that work. Um, so I just want to get to the next things here. Um, yeah, yeah. May is National Foster Care Awareness Month. So, Kalila, would you, what would you say to foster youth who may be really struggling um, with their identity, with just life, with with God, all of the things you know what they struggle with? What what, what piece of advice would you give a struggling foster youth? You know. Um, it might be hard to go through what you're going through, but you're not getting out of this life without going through hard things. And so learning how to navigate the hard with the right resources in place is critical. Um, in terms of the relationship with God and identity, your identity really only comes from God and he is the only one who can tell you what that is. I know for me, I associated God with the people that were closest to me and that were my parental figures. And I think in general, people put those earthly labels um, and those attributes, um, those characteristics, we assign them to God instead of really getting to know God for who he is, not who we think him to be according to what somebody told us or according to somebody's actions, right? And so, um, you know, dive into, into your Bible, find a translation that you understand and ask God to help you understand it because he will, um, you know, and 
whether you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian, you're still not getting out of this life without going through hard things. But following Christ makes it more bearable. Following Christ gives you uh, somebody to lean on continuously that won't fail you. And understand too that the trials and the hardships and things that you face in life, they're not always about you. And it doesn't mean that God uh, did this to you on purpose, right? What it does mean is that your story will serve to set someone else free. And so there's going to come a time in your life where you might run into somebody who's going through the same thing that you did or that you are currently going through. And you're going to be uniquely positioned to be able to speak life into their situation or to offer them hope, right? And so you can either offer them hope or you can offer them doom and gloom, right? And so what would you rather offer them, right? For me, I'd rather offer them, this is what God's done for me. Because I stayed faithful, right? This is how good he is. And this is what he's done for me. Or I could go the other route. When I chose not to follow God, my life was chaotic and it stayed in chaos, right? Did he provide for me still? Yes, because he takes care of his children. But was I miserable and unhappy and still trying to fill this void with anything that I could? Also, yes, right? I no longer have to do that because he's filled the void because I let him, right? And that's and that's critical, Um yeah. Love that. Love that. So most of our listeners are adoptive and foster parents. Um, yeah. You know, so what what would you like them to know? Be present. Um, understand that the lines can be blurred on trafficking and on foster care and adoption. And what I mean by that is that if we're not careful um youth can be commodified right and so when my husband and i were going through the foster to adopt classes uh what i found particularly disturbing was there was um in multiple of the classes from different people right um was the question of can we pick what kid we get and the response was, you can pick the age group or the age, you know, like two to five-year-olds or one to three-year-olds. You can pick the nationality. You can have an understanding of their background. You can pick whether or not they have special needs or don't have special needs. Um, and the and if that wasn't disturbing enough, it was, and if it doesn't work out, you can send them back. It is no different than what we see in trafficking. In trafficking, right, for the buyer, I want this age, I want this skin color, I want them to be this behavior, I want them to dress like this, I want them to act like that, 
uh, you know what? I didn't really like that girl. Can I have a boy instead? And we see the same thing in trafficking, right? So those lines can be very blurred, right? And so um, when that happens to a child regularly, right? The message that they're hearing, the message that I heard was you're too much, you're not enough, you're not a good fit, you're too old, you're too young, right? So nothing I did or nothing I didn't do, right? It was never, it was never sufficient. So it was constantly that it was on me. It was always on me. And so uh, that really does something to a child and their sense of identity and their sense of self-worth. Um, you know, we know we're hard kids. We're not unaware that we're <laughs> that we're a mess. We're completely one million percent hyper aware of the fact that we have issues and we are going to push back. We are going to um to be hard because we are dealing with so much anger and trauma that our bodies and our minds have no concept of how to couple with that. And that said, don't mistake the kid that is overachieving and who's getting the best grades and who seems to be really mature and handling everything. Well, that's still a trauma response. There's still something that they're missing, right? So don't dismiss that and say, oh, well, they're fine. No, they're not. There's still something they're missing there because they're now overdoing everything and trying to make themselves look so normal that you're missing what's underneath that, right? So, you know, relationships are so key, you know, and, and I'll go back to, to, you know, what I, what I always um, default on is we live in such a digital age that people are stuck on their phones and we see this, right? We hand them a tablet, they're on their computer and we say, oh, that's just kids. Oh, well, they're just watching a little something. No, they're not just watching a little something. <laughs> Monitor them. Stop giving them a tablet when they're two. It's not, you're, you're doing such a disservice to them, right? Um, and so those are those are critical things, you know. Um, in the in the book that I co-authored um with Empty Frames Initiative and with other survivors, um, which um Empty Frames Initiative is an organization um, that seeks to um, to build a space for youth coming out of foster care um, to put supports in place for them so that they're not just falling flat on their face and so that we're giving them resources for um, for where they can go next and giving them a space to breathe before they have to jump out into the real world, right? Um and so in the in the second volume, uh, they they do have a volume one um, on the story of foster care. Um, but on the volume two, it's exploring the intersection of human trafficking and foster care. And so um, myself, along with other survivors, um, you know, we talk about these different experiences that we all had, um, which are all different within the foster care system. Um, and at what points it failed us. And I think in reading those things, um, you get more of a sense of what's happening 
at different levels and at different ages and in different regions, right? Because how the foster care system works here in Ohio or how it works in Nevada may not be the same as how it functions in Washington or in Montana or, you know what I mean, in California or in New York. They're going to have different nuances. And so um, those are things that, that are talked about in that. Yeah, we're definitely going to include links to the to the book. Um, because awesome. that is, yeah, that's a, it's a wonderful um, resource. And, um, and uh, we had, oh, my goodness, I'm going to go blank. Miriam. Miriam, thank you. Yes. Um, we had Miriam on last week. So um, yeah. we talked all about the book and, and you're featured in there. So we're so grateful for that. And Kalila, I just thank you for your bravery, your transparency, your tenacity, um, oh, and just for yeah for sharing your story to help others. I uh, just really appreciate it. Um, so grateful because it's evident what God has done in your life. Um, so it's been an honor to have this conversation with you. Thank, thank you, you so much the for being with mine. us. Thank you yeah, so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Thank you for sticking with us throughout this conversation. I know it was intense. It was incredible. Um, you know, and it just an astounding experience. And for Kalila and just her just sharing her story like that and just seeing how God just redeemed her life. What an inspiration uh, for all of us. And um, so just some words of wisdom there at the end, too, that we need to take into consideration um, when we're caring for our kiddos. Uh, thank you for, for sticking with us. Thank you for listening to the adoption and foster care journey. Um, thank you for what you're doing. Um, we are making a difference on the behalf of our kiddos, but we need to make sure that we are seeing them as, as they are a reflection of God, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult it gets. Um, it should not be a revolving door. Uh, we, we need to stay the course with our kiddos and show them that they are valuable. It is hard. Life is hard. Jesus promised, you know, we're going to have, you know, trials and and difficulties, but he has overcome the world, and we see how he overcame also in Khalila's life. So we just need to, I don't know, this just came into my heart. We need to be on our faces for our kiddos and bringing them before the Lord and seeing them as he sees them and caring for them as he would care for them. So I hope you were encouraged today. I hope you were inspired. I hope you'll check out the Empty Frames book. We'll put a link into the show notes. Um, so thank you again. Uh, check out our website for training. Check out our website for resources. We are here for you, justicefororphansny.org. Um, and you can reach out to me also, Sandra Flack, at justicefororphansny.org. Um, go to the website. Check it all out. If you enjoyed the show, again, please subscribe leave a review, find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And again, grateful that you spent your valuable time with us today. I am thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends 
so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.